This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, what makes a sound investment? We asked this question today to Peter Caldor. Peter worked for several years in merchant banking, but now works for City Bible Forum, where he heads up the National City Bible Forum team. He also loves running really long ultra marathons, and he joins me now. Please welcome Peter Caldor. Thank Peter, you, Robert. Peter, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you, Robert. Um, so, Peter, you really love running really, really long marathons. Mm. Is that a sound investment of time? Well, the emphasis on really, really long is quite appropriate. Sometimes they've been up to 30 hours long. Yeah. Whether it's a right investment or not, I guess it depends on what return you're seeking, Robert. <laughs> so what sort of return do you get? Like sore legs? <laughs> well, I, I think if you aspire adventure, some risk and camaraderie, then there are great returns. Oh, okay, right. Um, and also sore legs? Sore legs too. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're asking Peter Caldor about what makes a sound investment. So, Peter, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about the investments of Donald Trump. Mm. Now, Probably not much. Do you, do you feel qualified at all? <laughs> no, I don't. No? Okay, well, we'll see how you go. Yeah, yeah. There's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. According to a Time magazine article published in 2015, which of the following of Donald Trump's businesses was not a failure? Was it A, Trump Vodka, B, Trump Airlines, C, Trump Tower, or D, Trump Mortgage. So which of those was not a failure? Three of them were, which of them wasn't? Hmm, okay, well I'm drawn to either C or D. That's good, yeah. Um, <laughs> not having heard of the first two, <laughs> I've also not heard of the fourth, so I guess I'll just stick with Trump Tower. And that's a good choice, that's a sound investment to me, okay. because that's the correct answer. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump's famous 48-story Trump Tower opened in 1983 and is still highly sought after real estate. Uh, yet when he started Trump Mortgage in April 2006, he announced that it was a great time to start a mortgage company. Now, Peter, with your knowledge of the markets, do you think that 2006 was a great time to start a mortgage business in the US? Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, no. <laughs> okay, well it was because the company shut down in less than 18 months. So okay, anyway, question two. Now this question may sound very similar to question one, uh, because it is. So according to a Time magazine article published in 2015, which of the following of Donald Trump's businesses was not a failure? Was it A, Trump casinos? Was it B, Trump steaks? Was it C, Trump university? Or D, Trump place? So mm. three of those were failures. One of those was a success. Which one was it? Mm. Well, I am rather stumped on this one, but um, I'll go with the casino. Well... You could, but it's wrong, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> so it's not, it wasn't actually a good investment, so to speak. It was actually Trump Place. Our uh, answer was D. Okay. Trump Place was a successful housing development along the Hudson River of New York City, whereas uh, Trump University was sued for offering classes that amounted to extended infomercials. And a Trump Steaks restaurant in Las Vegas was shut down following 51 health code violations. Um, you know a good investment when you see one because you passed our quiz. One out of two. Big round of applause. <laughs> 
So, Peter, contrary to your instincts, Trump uh, casinos, mm. Trump mortgage, Trump stakes and Trump vodka probably weren't the best investments. Mm. Yet Trump Tower and Trump Place were. So how can you tell the difference between a good and a bad investment? There are a number of things I think one can look at. Uh, you might be considering a more passive investment where someone else is managing your money. Mm -hmm. I think, therefore, it's very important to be looking at the character of the people mm -hmm. who are doing the investing. So what about Donald Trump? I mean, Trump stakes, it sounded like a good investment. And he himself said, when it comes to great stakes, I've just raised the stakes. Um, he's a trustworthy character. He said, one bite and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And believe me, I understand stakes. They're my favourite food. So, I mean, surely he's someone trustworthy. You mean, his stakes is his favourite food. Yeah. Well, I think you've already said enough. But, uh, <laughs> it wasn't successful. So the character of the, the, the yeah, thing I think you're investing the, in is one thing. That's important. Well, the character of the people who are doing the uh, managing the money. Yep. Or it might be in the case of more active investment in a company where you'd want to be confident in the management of the people. Again, uh, largely depending on their character and their track record. Mm -hmm. Do they have skin in the game? Are they actually invested in what you're investing in? Things like that I would look for. Okay. Can you tell a good investment? Um, before you make it? Well, clearly not with any high degree of certainty. There are certain things you can look for, but one of the fundamental things of any investment, in fact, a very fundamental principle of finance is there's a relationship between risk and expected return. Mm -hmm. So uh, if there was no such thing as uh, uncertainty, well, of course you could tell a good one from a bad one, mm. but uh, there is always an element of risk. Yeah, even in so-called safe investments? Yes, I think one clear sign is there's no such thing as easy money. Right. So if uh, something sounds too good to be true, then it's fair to assume that it is too good to be true. Even Trump stakes. Certainly. <laughs> so yeah. so what, what else do you then need to consider in making an investment? So well, I think for most of us, the key thing really is considering our horizon. What is our time frame? Yeah. And so it's really important to think through uh, how long is my investment horizon and does that match my cash flow needs? Mm -hmm. And often the mistakes we make is where there's a mismatch between the investment and our needs. Yeah. So say you raised earlier the issue of the GFC. I think a lot of people are caught out when they've gone long, say, in the stock market, and they're not actually able to afford those positions. And when they go against them, they need to liquidate them because they need to meet other obligations. So the foolishness there is being overextended when you can't actually match that with your expenditure requirements. Mm. What about investing in other things like family, relationships, marathons perhaps? I mean, mm. would they be a more secure investment? Well, not necessarily secure, no. I think the principle of risk and return or risk and expected return applies in all of life, really. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I don't think it's necessarily more secure, but the returns you're looking for would be very different. Yeah. You're not looking for a pecuniary return, a financial return. Um, you'll be looking for other sorts of things. Yeah, what sort of things would you be looking for then in family and relationships? Well, I think with family, if we think of children, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. You're, you're naturally thinking of a much longer horizon, aren't you? Mm -hmm. From birth to when they reach adolescence and maturity, you have a long time to invest. And I think there you're investing in someone's character, their development, their capacity to make decisions, wise decisions on their own. Mm. They're the sorts of returns you'd look for. Mm. So in some sense, you do use the same sort of uh, framework with which to assess uh, investing in people as you do maybe a financial in well, investment? Yeah, you could say, you could suggest perhaps the same framework, but. Your kids uh, might not appreciate it if you do a cost benefit analysis perhaps of you know, no, their, their schooling no. education or something. Well, true. <laughs> and, and, and you're certainly not looking to reap a return in any sort of financial sense.
Yes. Yeah. Well, it's possible that you could, but that's perhaps not the right motivation. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. 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 So what are, are there problems then investing in others? I don't think there are problems. There are, there's no guaranteed outcome. Yeah. I can think of lots of examples where I might have invested time and even uh, money in supporting other individuals and the outcome wasn't as I anticipated. Is that a problem? Well, from the perspective of me and my attitude towards supporting someone else, perhaps not. If I'm thinking from the point of view of a guaranteed outcome, that the outcome is as I had envisaged, well, yes, you could say there's a problem. Um, I think from the perspective of us investing in people uh, and being willing to give to people, no, I don't think mm. there's a, a problem. Now, an online motivational meme once said, invest in yourself. Put all of your energy into your goals and dreams instead of temporary things and people. You'll be glad you did it. Mm. So is investing in yourself a wise investment strategy? <coughs> ah, to a degree, certainly yes. And um, if we think of our education at school and at university and professional development, these things, we, we should be forever learning. We should not consider that we've arrived. Um, even when it comes to considering things that we'll look at today in the Bible, we shouldn't feel like we've arrived. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, we're always on a journey of learning and discovery. Um, so investing in ourselves is very important. Mm -hmm. But it's also said instead of temporary things and people, you'll be glad you did it. So what, at what sense do you then determine whether to invest in myself or to invest in others? Yeah, so I guess there's a tension, isn't it? So we, we ideally it's not a trade-off. And I think... Um, from my perspective, as, as now as a Christian, I would want to see investing in other people as a priority, but it, not to necessarily the detriment of my own learning and, and development. Mm. Now, we're asking Peter Cowdor today's big question, what makes a sound investment? And Peter, as you've mentioned just now about the Bible and being a Christian, uh, we think about the wisdom in the Bible. Maybe you could share a little bit about why you think the Bible's worth following. So can you tell us what convinced you? To become a Christian believer? Because you didn't grow up in a Christian no, home. No, So No, I didn't, absolutely didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, I guess I grew up in many ways in a quite typical Australian family, a migrant family that had come to Australia after Second World War, my father's side being Jewish, mother's side notionally Protestant, but in no ways practising. In fact, we grew up with my father, not with my mother. I think what drew me to it was... I was in, interested in really the bigger questions of life. I was going out with a girlfriend who wasn't a Christian herself and um, something along the lines of our discussion led us to go to a church. Mm -hmm. And I think what I was struck by initially was the freedom in the context where I found myself where you could ask questions and the speaker in a very informal manner uh, presented information about the Bible and the audience, the people who were there, were very welcoming and accommodating for my questions. So the combination of the forum and how it was done and the people I met and the way in which the person teaching the Bible um, was very open with question time really was just a perfect combination for me at the time. Yeah. So what were your questions at that time? Well, I, I was happy to accept the notion, broadly speaking, of God existing. But beyond that, I don't think I really had much of a an understanding of who that God would be. Sure, I would you know, maybe pray to God in times of need and desperation like perhaps many other people would, but really it was just a, a passing thing. So as I came to hear talks and then ultimately met up with a young man by the name of Paul and we read the Bible together, um, I discovered lots of things I didn't know. One of the big questions for me was, why do we meet the person of Jesus? I was happy with this idea of God in sort of abstract terms, 
but Jesus just sounds a little bit too personal. To put a name to God is a little bit confronting. Right. So that was one of the questions I wrestled with. So how did you resolve that? Well, that in turn was connected to another issue that I struggled with, and that was the understanding that I had inadequacies in myself. You know, that sounds a bit surprising, isn't it? But um, uh, it's easy to see that other people actually need help and ultimately forgiveness. But it takes some time for you to fully realise that you need that yourself. Yeah. I mean, in the context, my life, you know, objectively speaking, was fine. I, I was not in any kind of crisis. I, I had a nice girlfriend, university was successful, sport, I had no material needs. So in, in, from, from that perspective, life was fine. I wasn't, in a sense, in a, in a, in a hole and needed sort of to be mm. lifted up. Nevertheless, coming to the realisation that I needed forgiveness in my life helped me understand the significance and the enormity of what Jesus did mm. in dying for my sins. Mm. So that, that was a real moment, and there were others. Mm. So what were you investing in then at that stage in your life? I wouldn't say I was really investing. I'd, I'd probably say I was coasting. It's not that I really had any great ambitions with work, I think, looking back. I was really just going along with the flow. And I think investment means intention, means actually a commitment. I don't think I was particularly committing to anything. So what changed and what, was, what particularly persuaded you to, to become a follower of Jesus? Uh, well, firstly, as I mentioned, the realisation that I needed forgiveness. Yep. That, that was a big moment. And that helped me understand the person of Jesus. The second big thing was the realisation that this newfound awakening to God was not my own doing, that actually God was at work in me from beginning to end and that he had brought me to this point and it was a gift for me to start to understand this. Mm. And that was the other big moment that I guess you could say sort of sealed the deal. Yeah, terrific. Well, thanks very much for sharing your story today, Peter. Now, Peter, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible Hmm. says in chapter 10, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Hmm. So in this sense, is this in the sense what Donald Trump's done? He's invested in more than eight ventures. So the Maybe is the Bible suggesting diversification as an investment strategy here? I think it is. And, and I'm not sure that Donald Trump took his cue from these verses. <laughs> um, but I think it is suggesting that we really can't control the future. So therefore, we should um, have a go. We should invest in alternate strategies. Yep. Why is this? Is this to offset risk? Well, certainly diversification theory tells us that. Um, I think this is suggesting that we don't know what disaster may come upon the land. If we're only invested, if all our eggs are in one basket, uh, that's a very risky position to be in. Yes, yeah. Um, Now, this seems to be speaking predominantly of financial investments Hmm. here. I mean, the principles could be broadened to other uh, areas of life, do you think? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I I think it's good to be... um, not to be one-dimensional, particularly as, as some of us perhaps might be, you know, approaching retirement, for example. Uh, that's a big turning point in life when children have gone, work is finished. What are we going to do with our time in retirement? Have we invested in things that we can actually then meaningfully do in retirement? Mm. Um, if we're very narrow, we might find that to be a very lonely experience. But what about our current generation? Now, they described that our generation is in some, some ways the options generation. Mm. So what are your thoughts on that, particularly in, in the idea of investing in different things? What's mm. the difference between investing in our current generation, we think? Yeah, it's true, isn't it? The, the young people today, they are referred to as the options generation, sort of hedging their bets, 
keeping, keeping their options open. Uh, I would suggest that it's a bit different what's being recommended here. I think the difference is that this is advocating investing, not hedging. And the options generation, I think, is quite willing to sit on the fence and look at the options, but not necessarily commit to any. Mm. And there's a difference between hedging and investing. Yes, there's a big difference. Investing means commitment. Whereas if you're just keeping your options opening, open and you're sitting on the fence and sort of hedging, then ultimately you're not committing to people often. The fact that we're delaying marriage and things like that and the start of childbirth and raising families is probably related, mm. that we're not willing to commit. Mm. So you think we should take a risk? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and does the investment horizon affect what you invest in as well? Yes, definitely. So, I mean, it's certainly true in a financial sense, as I mentioned before, that we need to know uh, cash flow needs and, and match our investments with that. And um, with, when it comes to, say, something like marriage, uh, one of the ultimate investments, we're hopefully playing the long game. We're hopefully doing it for life. Mm. So it is, it is probably the greatest risk mm. because you don't know what's going to happen all through life. Hence, in the classic marriage vows, it's for better or for worse in sickness and in health. Mm. Now, there's an expression I was told as a young marketing analyst, paralysis by analysis. So mm. is this what's happening in the, in the next passage? It says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Mm. I think that would suggest that if we only focus on the downside, we'll never really act. Now, there are some people who are more prone to look at the negative, And there's a place for that in you know, an, a wise investment analysis. It's good to do your worst case scenario as they say. Um, in banking days, when we would look at projected cash flows of investments, we would do our worst case scenario to see in that scenario, can we get the debt repaid? So there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's only what we look at, this is suggesting that we'll never really act. We won't commit. Mm. Does the Bible perpetuate ignorance in the next part where it says, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. I mean, but modern meteorology tells us that wind patterns and modern science and embryology shows us how the human body is formed. So, I mean, is the Bible wrong here? Is the author just content with us being ignorant, not knowing? It'd be interesting if you ask that question perhaps in the Caribbean when they've just had Hurricane Irma and Maria. Um, yes, we might be able to warn them 24, 48 hours in advance, but can we warn them a month in advance? Can we actually tell them the path of the wind? Mm -hmm. uh, I suggest not. Um, what about how the baby's formed in the womb? Yes, we certainly know some things about how conception works and growth in the womb. One of my daughters is studying psycholinguistics at the moment. I've never known such a subject existed. <laughs> and one of the things she said was that um, babies forming in the womb actually prefer, once they're born, to listen to the language that they heard while they were in the womb and actually also prefer to hear passages that were spoken while they were in the womb. So I think there's a lot of mystery. Mm. So what I think you're referring to here in these, this verse, it's suggesting that we as humans can easily fall into the trap of arrogance and folly to think that we can be in control, mm. uh, whether of the elements or even of life itself. Mm. A number of questions have come in from our text line from our live audience here. You say you realised you needed forgiveness. In this day and age, I find this contrary to how people generally think. How did you reach this conclusion and how would you encourage someone to think to reach this conclusion? Um, I think it's really acknowledging an honest self-reflection 
we generally don't live up to our own aspirations. And as we read the pages of the Bible and see how God would have us live, uh, particularly how we treat and relate to other people, we can see that we fall far short. And this is one of the things which drew me into the veracity, the truth of the text of the Bible, was my experience of life found a point of contact, a connection with what scripture was teaching. And one of those points of contact was about what it taught about humanity and ultimately what it taught about myself as a person. So I think it's that honest reflection on what the Bible says about us as people and whether it resonates with our own experience. Mm. Another question is, should we offset the risk of believing in one deity? <laughs> Hedge our bets. With Hedge, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I, maybe if we pick up on that sort of options generation, um, when do we ever arrive at the end of that search? So if we feel that um, we can dabble with different religions, ultimately, um, I would suggest we, we do need to commit there as well. You could take a risk. Take a risk, yes. Yeah, yeah. How do we work through how much to invest and how much to give? That's, that's a very pertinent question. The classic sort of cycle is that we accumulate capital and we tend then to expect that in our retirement we will then use some of those savings and then we might choose to leave what's left behind to children or give to charity. That's kind of the classic sort of cycle. Parts of the Bible would suggest that that's not a very wise strategy, that if we take a longer, longer perspective, if we take an eternal perspective, that that capital that we've accumulated won't have legal tender in the age to come. You won't be able to take it with you. So it suggests actually that we use it and invest it in people so that when we do get to that age to come, there might be lots of friends there with us. So that's quite a different perspective when it comes to investing and giving. Um, and there's more we could say in, in other realms, I suppose. Mm. In some ways, giving of time, resources, etc., is a form of investment perhaps as well? It is. Uh, I suppose if, if we give to ventures and to people, we, we are investing in them. Mm. Um, there's perhaps just one risk there that as we give, uh, certainly from the Bible's perspective, it doesn't encourage us to give with strings attached. So we don't give with conditions, as sometimes an investment might come with conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, the author goes on in Ecclesiastes to, to write, Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Mm. So how should we live knowing that nothing is certain? Well, we are told... Um, just a little bit above that, that we cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Mm -hmm. So I think this is encouraging us to not to be frozen in inertia, not to be fearful, but rather to trust the wisdom of the ultimate doer, the ultra investor, the the ultimate maker, the creator of all things. He's the one who has the long-term view. He's the one that knows the final outcome. He's wise. And so therefore that should actually encourage us to action not to inertia, that we can sow our seed in the morning because we can be confident that he will actually know the ultimate outcome. Mm, It's not a fatalistic kind of No, it's uh, not fatalistic at all. Um, Fatalism would suggest that it's all kind of predetermined. So I don't do anything. Exactly. Whereas this is suggesting that 
it's actually liberating. It's suggesting that we can have a go. We can use the circumstances, the resources, uh, whatever God has provided us for good, and knowing that he is wise and is, is in control of all things. Mm. Another question is coming, which is, how do you decide when to terminate an underperforming mm. investment, both financially and people? So I'm mm. quite sure how to, <laughs> how to interpret that, but yeah. yeah. Okay, well, with the financial one, inertia often sets in. So people are far more concerned about losses than they are about gains. So if you have an investment, and let's say you've bought shares at $5 and they've gone to $8, and you don't realise that profit, and then they return to $5 and to $4, the studies show that you are unlikely to sell it because there's more psychological pain in having made a loss. So I would encourage you to cut your losses and to not be frozen in inertia just because you've made a loss. Yeah. And what about people? Well, with, with people it is a bit different, particularly those that uh, are in our immediate relational orbit, our family, our friends, our colleagues. We need to be investing in them for better or for worse. And it's not really um, up to us to, to cut those relationships if we feel it's not being reciprocated. If we're talking about employer-employee situation, if that's what the questioner is getting at, then clearly there'll be situations where it's, you, you need to let someone go. Mm. So how has becoming a Christian changed what you invest in? That's a good question. I think that um, one of the things that I've learned is that the, the Christian journey is, is really one from self-centeredness towards other person-centeredness. So whilst I said before I became a believer, I probably really wasn't investing. I was kind of just coasting. The assumption probably was that it was really what, whatever might maximise my own happiness. Now, as someone who is trying to follow Jesus and who sees that God is ultimately the one in control, investing now for me would be investing in people over profits. People matter much more. Hmm. So it's, it's the relational impact of what we do uh, you know, to, to borrow the, the line from Gladiator, which will echo in eternity. That, that's what matters, the relational impact of our uh, efforts. Mm. So what are some of the better investments that you've made <laughs> in your life? Well, it's hard to go past uh, my wife and I investing in our children. Mm-hmm. Um, that's front and centre, and God willing, there may be grandchildren. So people, really, those around you immediately uh, that you invest in. And um, it's it's a great joy when... You see people develop, uh, whether it's family, friends, um, children. Mm. So, Peter, what makes a sound investment? It's firstly recognising human limitation, uh, that we aren't in control of all things, that we resist the temptation towards arrogance, and secondly, realising that there is someone who is in control, that the maker of all things knows the beginning from the end. And so a sound investment realises that ultimate horizon, that we're investing in a long-term horizon, investing in people that will echo into eternity. Let me leave you with the Bible's reflections on the big question, what makes a sound investment? From Ecclesiastes 11.2. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, Peter Calder. 